Hello, and welcome to Speaking Refugee, the Vulner podcast. My name is Sham Jeff, and welcome back to our podcast series about how refugees experience vulnerabilities when seeking asylum. In the last two episodes, we talked about how vulnerabilities can be felt and experienced in very different ways, depending on the context. Feel free to listen to them first, if you haven't done that yet. We learned that in Lebanon, for example, refugees' feelings of vulnerability are strongly connected with the lack of legal status, which feeds precarity and uncertainty. In Uganda, a country often praised for its good humanitarian aid system by the international community, teaching and education are seen as a tool to deal with vulnerabilities for refugees and to strengthen their resilience. And although being supplied with all they need at the material level, a single parent family still faces many challenges in Belgium. National context and individual situations influence how vulnerability is understood by social workers and experienced by refugees. This podcast is part of the Vulner Project. We talked to a refugee in Uganda, Gabriel. There was a feeling in me that there is something you want to become, but I couldn't tell you what. <laughs> An asylum seeker in Belgium, Jamila. It was the goal to be in a safe place, no matter how my health was, how pregnant my, I am. And to a social worker in Lebanon, Fatima. We need to hear from refugees first. They are entitled to talk about their own experiences. If you've listened to our previous episodes, you should know them a little bit better by now. The Vulner Project's research aims to understand the vulnerabilities faced by migrants to enable decision-makers to better identify situations of vulnerabilities and address them. For this purpose, the Vulner research teams have conducted fieldwork to reach a better understanding of the vulnerabilities as lived by the migrants themselves. They met with social workers and migrants, and in this podcast, we will talk about the findings of these research teams in Uganda, Belgium, and Lebanon. Portion beans is the food that every refugee that is being given for survivors. The boots were too oily or some cheesy or salty. So it wasn't eatable. I think food security in Lebanon has been... Um, Worsening. Today, we want to talk about a very basic need of all human beings, food. <laughs> food is the fuel of every living creature on this planet. We need it to have energy for our daily duties and to maintain life itself. Children need it to grow and be healthy. Food can also be a central part of family or cultural life. The smell of your mom's favorite dish or the many different ways a lentil soup can be cooked in different homes, families, and regions. Food can make us happy. It brings people together at one table. 
It is a very important part of all the rituals that shape our lives. A cake for our birthday, a buffet at a wedding, or even at a funeral. We connect over food. We share our food with people who we call family and friends. But food can also be a part of our daily struggles and worries. Right now, there are news reports about unrests in Tunisia because of food shortages. The World Food Program estimates that 345 million people are facing acute food insecurity in 82 countries for 2022. Climate change, financial crises, and wars, such as Russia's war and Ukraine, endanger the food supply of millions of people, especially in the global south. But even in the richer countries of the West, the poorer parts of the population are feeling the effects of these global crises on their plates. The food crisis is hitting those who are already the most vulnerable particularly hard, and forced migration as a result of conflict, natural or environmental disaster, or other stress factors, is one of the biggest causes of hunger in the world today. In the 2018 Global Hunger Index, Dr. Laura Hammond of the University of London writes... Hunger is both a danger that threatens the lives of people forced to leave their homes and a key influence on their decisions about when and where to move. For many refugees, the food supply, or some kind of shortage, is one of the reasons they have to leave their homes. And to most international organizations, such as the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, or Food for Life, an organization in Uganda, the food supply for refugees is the top priority. But the quantity and quality of the food they are able to offer to those in need, it varies from country to country and also depends on its current financial situation. And as Lebanon is struggling with the financial crisis itself, the food supply for its many refugees, as you remember, it has the highest number of refugees per capita, that has become worse. I think food security in Lebanon has been um, worsening, given that, you know, uh, people are unable to afford their uh, basic food uh, needs due to financial uh, crisis or lack of access to money or stability. Especially, you know, like during the financial crisis, you know, uh, import-export was affected. And Lebanon um, depends heavily on, you know, uh, import in terms of um, agriculture and other items. This is Fatima. She is a humanitarian aid worker in the Middle East. One of the countries she works in is Lebanon. She told us that it is not easy to buy bread in Lebanon and that politically... Many have blamed Syrian refugees for this. As you can imagine, a country that struggles to meet the basic needs of its own population also struggles to supply those who come for help and shelter. This is also true in richer countries when some political leaders engage in scapegoating against refugees and cut the spendings on humanitarian aid for refugees. In Lebanon... The Volner research conducted by Catherine Brun, Maria Malouf, Maha Shaib, and Sharna Taif 
shows many refugees suffer from food insecurity. The Vulnerability Assessment of Syrian Refugees in Lebanon, or short, Vazir 2021, showed that food security was one of the main challenges for Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Around half of Syrian refugee households were food insecure in 2021. More than 90% of the food insecure had inadequate diets. Syrian refugee households continued to consume less variety of food. The share of households with poor daily dietary diversity almost tripled. Only one-fifth of households had a rich daily diet diversity, similar to 2020, and down by 12 percentage points compared to 2019. There was a significant decrease in iron consumption, with 82% of households never consuming iron. So, let's talk about iron. One of the easiest ways to replenish your iron stores as a human is by consuming meat. If you are a vegetarian, you probably know that. Because consuming enough iron on a plant-based nutrition requires some creativity and even more diversity in your daily diet. If you fail to do so, you can get anemia, a condition in which you lack enough healthy red blood cells, which can make you feel tired and weak. Many families have expressed that they have not had meat in months. They could not afford having meat. They could not diversify their vegetable intake because even vegetables prices are increasing. They are not affordable uh, for refugees and host communities. Especially mothers are found to suffer from anemia quite often. A 2021 study on the prevalence of anemia among Syrian refugee mothers and their children under five years in Greater Beirut found out that almost one quarter of the mothers and one-third of the children had anemia. And iron is only one of the many nutrient deficiencies out there. The study also found... The nutritional status of vulnerable population groups can be further exposed to acute and chronic malnutrition due to the severe financial crisis in Lebanon since October 2019, resulting in hyperinflation of food prices, soaring unemployment rates and reduced incomes combined with containment measures for COVID-19 pandemic and the aftermath of the Beirut port explosion in August 2020. And in 2022, the war in Ukraine came on top. The wheat supply from Ukraine and Russia decreased, and other countries noted shortages in wheat exports too, as they suffered some of their worst harvest seasons in decades. The Volner research on Lebanon found that Lebanon shifted the humanitarian response to provide shelter, food, education, health, and even protection to its refugee population to international and national organizations. Without the help of these organizations, care for the refugees would be even worse. When it comes to nutrition, 
Vulnerability comes primarily from a lack of food. That is why so many humanitarian organizations have a strong focus on helping refugees with food supplies. In Uganda, one of the many organizations trying to help is Food for Life. They try to identify, as they call it, extremely vulnerable people at food distribution points. The report cites an aid worker for Food is Life. For example, we give vegetables to pregnant mothers, young children who are minors, child-headed families to ensure that they improve their health, and we go ahead to teach them how they can grow their food so that away from our services, they know how to maintain their health. Another organization Sophie Nakuera spoke to for the Volner Research Project is Medical Teams International. Their aim is not only to supply refugees with food, but also to educate them about nutrition. Yes, we focus a lot on women and children because children under five are most susceptible to dying from malaria. Mothers as well, through nutrition feeding program that focuses on women and children. We give women and children blanket support for three months. We do food demonstrations. We show them what type of food they should eat or grow. Education, again, is one of the strategies to respond to food insecurity and vulnerability. And not only in Uganda. Fatima, the humanitarian worker from the Middle East, has started a program that shows refugees ways to grow own food as well. It is called food baskets. So we were trying to kind of, you know, explore opportunities to invest in opportunities in Lebanon. Many of those lands uh, are not being utilized properly. So we were trying to find, you know, a way to revive local communities' economy, ensure that, you know, there are more work opportunities for the local community, including Syrians and Lebanese. And we also wanted to make sure that if we decrease the financial burden on local farmers, that would mean that they would be able to price their products at a lower price, which would help local community to buy those basic items uh, at a better price, you know, more affordable price for them. And then we wanted to address that uh, through an intervention that targeted mainly Syrian and host communities with food baskets when, you know, they had the uh, main uh, food items provided for them. And we also targeted Lebanese farmers in order to know the best practices in agriculture. And we have noticed that many uh, farmers, regardless being engaged in the uh, agriculture sector, they've been, you know, counting on certain practices that have been passed by generations. But, you know, they did not have the scientific or the ability to kind of assist themselves. Uh, so, you know, through our technical training, they were able to kind of be more reliant on themselves and what is best for their crops and so on. And then we provided them with seeds, we provided them with vouchers, and they were able to use those vouchers at supply shops when they chose their own items that would serve their own lands. There was a very positive aspect you know, of this project, which was like more younger generations of farmers were encouraged to start using their lands 
and they were like uh, more encouraged to revive past on knowledge that they had through their families while taking new techniques to apply so we can see some changes in the area where we work and that i think is really uh, important Providing especially young people with knowledge about how to grow their own food is a possible resilience strategy, and Fatima is optimistic that their project will help many people who have been struggling. But food itself can be a part of resilience too, because food is very often connected to family and community rituals. Having a good breakfast can help you start a good and productive day, as Gabriel tells us. I'm always hungry in the morning because I wake up, I go to run. <laughs> Living and teaching in the Uganda Naki Valley settlement, Gabriel goes for a run three times a week. 20 kilometers each time. He has a routine every morning. Early in the morning, I wake up, I work out, I take my child to school. Gabriel's breakfast, black tea and bread. Bread and black tea. I like black tea. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We drink black tea a lot in, in the Kurdish culture. We drink it in the morning, in the evening. In Uganda, there is a very common dish called posho. When you are a foreigner, you're coming to Uganda, you find everyone is eating that food. So it's liked by many people. <laughs> Gabriel's favorite food is posho and beans. Posho and beans or rice and beans. <laughs> <laughs> his mom used to make posho and beans for him and his siblings. Most of times she was posho and beans because it's the common food that every individual can get, can afford. And it's the food that every refugee that is being given for survival. It's a common food. It's, and it's a little bit cheaper compared to, to these other foods, like rice and whatever. So this one, every person can get it. And in schools, um, most, most schools in Uganda um, feed uh, students portion beans. So that's the food we've been eating. At least 90% of refugees can have the experience of eating on that food. And your mom made it, right? A lot. Yeah, my mom made me like it so much because when we were in Tanzania, there is kind of posho we are given, it is yellow in color. You could eat and like it so much. <laughs> so, yeah. And today, Gabriel cooks posho and beans for his daughter. Yeah, beans. She likes beans and posh rice and beans. I don't know why she, why she likes my favorite meals. <laughs> I, she likes them so much. Like even when you, yeah, even fish. But with the posho, it's a, a different story. She likes them so much. Being able to give food to your kids and them even liking it, having a daily food routine, eating together as a family... This is very important to practically all parents, wherever they live. Our daily errands, our work, our appointments and duties are sorted around meals. Meals are moments of refueling, moments with our family or our colleagues. They structure our days. In this way, 
Meals not only help our bodies get nourishment to get through daily tasks, rather, as a ritual, meals also help us to calm down and mentally recharge. Having meals with others strengthens our sense of togetherness, and this is a very good source of resilience. Missing the opportunity to recharge by having a good meal together, this can be a source for feelings of vulnerability. When Jamila arrived in the Belgium Center, she was pregnant. As we just heard, Food is Life, the humanitarian organization from Uganda, tries to meet the special needs of pregnant refugees, supplying them with healthy food, especially vegetables. They understand the importance of healthy eating during pregnancy and for little children. But the people working at the Belgium Center, where Jamila lived for nine months, did not take this into account. Food was not too much good because there were no priorities about the pregnant woman, the senior people, the kids especially. My little son every day he was just uh, sometimes eating bread because sometimes the foods were too oily or some cheesy or salty so it wasn't eatable have you ever been to belgium have you ever had a typical belgium dish like moule frite one of its national dishes maybe you have heard that belgium is famous for fries waffles and also chocolate Some of the Belgium foods are considered to be calorie bombs. They're not really healthy for pregnant people. When Jamila came to Belgium, she had problems finding healthier food for her son and herself. This caused some trouble for her, as her doctors found that her blood sugar went up. So she asked for a more balanced diet, but the settlement didn't provide different food to people with different needs. Many times I asked, even the doctor asked, that you should take an alternative food. You should change your food. She wasn't the only pregnant person. All of them did not get to decide what to eat. It was decided for them by others. This problem is also addressed in the Volner research on Belgium, conducted by Sylvie Sarolea, Francesca Raimondo, and Zoe Green. The asylum seekers are not able to decide what to eat and when to eat. In the reception centers, there is usually no private or common kitchen to share for residents. Among the centers visited, the Fedasil reception center of Rixensart was an exception. There, at the time of the visit, private kitchen were being completed but were not yet in use. The residents are allowed to cook only on very special occasions that are connected to specific activities of the center. Even though this may appear as a small detail, fieldwork showed that everything connected to food can acquire considerable importance. Hippolyte Kisonde, deputy director of the Fedasil Center of Rixensart, affirmed that having the possibility to cook according to one's habits and traditions could reduce what he defined the food stress. I think the term food stress is very helpful. If we try to understand why, 
Even when there is enough food for everyone, food-related vulnerabilities can arise. As we mentioned earlier, having the means to structure your daily routines around meals, it can help you feel good. And being able to carry out this routine on one's own responsibility, this is key, as the Volner research shows. First of all, cooking and shopping for food in a foreign country are basic skills with which residents can acquire self-confidence. As underlined by Julian Nittel, Deputy Director of the Center Red Cross of Jetty, preparing food allows residents to engage in a wide variety of tasks, such as getting groceries, talking with people in a foreign language, for example in order to pay in the shop, finding shops in a new area, comparing products and getting value for the money, and so on. These are all essential for living in a foreign country. Secondly, deciding the meal times is essential to a person's daily routine and if they are not in the cafeteria at the appointed time, it might be more difficult for a resident to get their meal. Thirdly, food has a cultural value. So, refugees' feelings of vulnerability, it also begins here, with everyday food. Els van Sandvliet, a nurse at the Fedasil Center of Bruchum, told the Volner team, Some people with children say, It's not good food for my child. I want good food for my child, but it's not possible, and that's giving a lot of stress. And although it is strictly forbidden, many residents in Belgian centers start to cook in their rooms. To many asylum seekers, smelling the food of their previous lives, like dishes their parents used to cook when they grew up, it gives them a feeling of being at home. And we learned why that matters in our first episode. If we put it all together, making a place your home, being together with your family, either by blood or a chosen new family, And having meals together with the people you care about, all this can be stress-relieving when everything else is perceived as stressful. For Jamila, the situation recently has changed. She moved from the center to an apartment. She is free to cook whatever she likes now. I boil the rice, then I keep out the water from the rice, then uh, put rice on flame and uh, put the cover. Uh, also, if you want to add a little bit oil, it would be much delicious. I put it for 10 to 15, then it would be a great rice with a delicious taste. I'm still cooking Afghan foods because I don't have similarity much with Belgian foods. I'm missing just my mom's rice. The new environment gives her a sense of self-efficacy. Yeah, it is much better because I have everything available in my hand. In camp, <laughs> it was uh, much difficult for me. My kids were little and the weather was too hot, I could not take them out to bring food or uh, something else. So it was a much difficult time for me. 
so now here I have a lot of space and I have markets near to me I have everything available as we could see in this episode Food is at the very core of everybody's lives. It can make a real difference having it or not having it. Due to the COVID pandemic and the war in Ukraine, food supply has worsened in many countries, and this affects refugees in particular. As Fatima told us, teaching people how to grow their own food, educating them about agricultural knowledge and giving them the opportunity to care for themselves, it is essential for their well-being. And sometimes, education starts with the little things. In some cases, for example, you would provide brown rice to a community that only eats white rice, and that would be culturally unacceptable. Still rice, but they don't know what to do with this rice because it's not part of their culture, their traditional dishes. So you have to take that into consideration. And the basis of your response should be through consultation with local communities and people you are serving. You ask them, you know, like, what do you usually eat? What do you usually buy? What are the major items that you consume on a daily basis? And then you see how that would fit into your budget and your ability to what you can provide. And then uh, look at the standards of the nutrition that you should provide. And this is how you design your food basket uh, items. The food baskets try to help refugees through education. They are one answer to the worldwide problem of food shortages. Maybe you thought that food was no problem in Europe, because there is no shortage, right? But we have seen that it is not all about quantity. Yes, there is no shortage in food supply in European refugee centers. But when not given any choice, that lack of autonomy in deciding what to eat can impact asylum seekers' feelings of well-being. The Volner research also shows how important asylum seekers find the possibility to cook for themselves and to choose their own food. Provide them with food is the most important, but giving them some autonomy in choosing their food and offering them a space, a community kitchen, for example, where they can cook, that also impacts on their well-being and how they feel. For when it comes to making a strange place your home, food plays a central role. It makes it possible to incorporate small rituals from the previous life into the new one. This was the third of six episodes of Speaking Refugee, the Volner podcast. In the upcoming episodes, we will talk about vulnerabilities and resilience strategies around gender, capital, and health. We hope you'll join us again. My name is Sham Jaff. Thanks for listening. The Volner Project is carried out by an international research consortium involving partners from nine research institutions located in six different countries. It is financed by the EU under the Horizon 2020 Work Program. This episode was designed by Haus 1, Karina Schröder, Sham Jaff, Katharina Alexander and Katrin Rönnecke. 
based on the input from the Volner team, Susanne Höb, Luc Leboeuf, Zoe Krien, Maria Malouf and Sophie Nakuera. Editing and Sound Design, Karina Schröder. Script, Katrin Rönnecke. Music by Blue Dot Sessions.